0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: Hello friends, spring has sprung in Melbourne where we make Australian true crime and where we've also been on stage four lockdown for months and months. But we're feeling optimistic because we've also figured out a way to bring our snazzy live stream to you. We're not taking any chances. It's definitely happening. On October 10, that's a Saturday, October 10, we still have Andrew Rule talking all things Chopper. We still have Julia Robson from Chasing Charlie talking about stalking. And we've added a very special extra superstar guest. It's the one and only former homicide detective, Charlie Vezina. Yes, the one and only handsome Charlie is joining us on our next live stream, October 10. If you already have tickets they're still good don't worry and if you don't have tickets all you have to do is go to our facebook page there'll be a link there australian true crime on facebook you can go to our website australiantruecrimepodcast.com or you can go to the website nottodeep.com.au nottodeep dot pcomau to buy your tickets And if you can't make the live stream, those tickets are good for replays. So don't miss it. Andrew Rule, Julia Robson and handsome Charlie Buzina on our next Australian True Crime live stream, Saturday, October 10th from 7pm. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
2: He had convictions for extortion, assault, false imprisonment, armed robbery, arson, drug trafficking and threats to kill and their marriage lasted six years.
3: No criminal is an island. They have families, acquaintances, partners and kids. Investigative journalist and author Rochelle Jackson wanted to know more about the partners of some of the criminals whose names have made headlines. Killers, armed robbers, gangsters. Behind these men are women who have loved them, stood by them and in some cases escaped from them.
0: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb.
3: Rochelle Jackson got to know some of these women who told their stories to her for the book Partners and Crime. First, Rochelle tells us about her career.
2: I'm a journalist that's come probably through the investigative journalist background. I mean, I've I've worked... You know, for the investigators on Channel 2 and I worked on Channel 7. Previously, I've worked as a television producer and I've done a lot of producing and always worked in crime and police stories. So I suppose that's really what I've been doing. I'm a journalist who's always specialised in true crime and my father was a chief superintendent in Victoria Police. And and so I suppose to a certain extent, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. I started writing books initially. I had made contact with Billy the Texan, Longley. Of course, he's a he was a very infamous figure in Melbourne's Docklands during the nineteen fifties right up to about the nineteen seventies. So I, I started sort of getting involved and I did I wrote his biography, which was an absolute experience. And you know, he was someone who loved the good feed of rabbits and his favourite movie was on the waterfront with Marlon Brando and he was a ballroom dancer and he's also a convicted killer and with an enormous enormous list of priors to his name and I suppose what sort of got me intrigued was I started to really look at what created him you know the depression created him to a certain extent there was a lot of police interesting occurrings (laughs) or police brutality in those days and um he was picked on from a very early day, um, and it created the person that he became. And I suppose out of that, after I published Billy's book, I then started working with probably one of the best forensic psychologists in the business, a guy by the name of Ian Joblin. We were focused on about eight specific individuals, and my second book, Inside Their Minds, I went around Australia interviewing all these people's relations, so Ivan Malat's family members, Martin Bryant's mother, Carl Williams' family, and then brought all those interviews back and worked with the forensic psychologist. Interviewed him about what created these people. So I suppose I've always had an investigative approach to what I've done, but I've also really learned you've got to be the reader's eyes and ears to a certain extent. You've got to lead them along that path. So you know, when I'm I'm writing about one of the Malat brothers, I write about. Going down into his shed because that was the location for him. That was his house, and that was where he kept his all his licensed guns in these big steel grey lockers underneath the house. And I'd speak, you know I write about those things and I draw a picture for the for the reader because they they haven't been there, so you've got to take them there, you know. And then this third book, I decided. I met Sylvia Bruno. She was married to Nikolai the Bulgarian, the Radiff, who was one of the gangsters in the the gangland wars. And I met her in 2009 and she really wanted me to write her story. And I just thought about it for a while and I thought, you know, there's enough women here that I could certainly, you know, I really want to hear their truth. I want to hear their story. We all get told certain things. We always get told about these women's lives and they're referred to at the bottom of a paragraph about their partners. But I thought, well, I want to hear their story. There's a lot of stereotyping. There's a lot of, oh, you know, they just like bad men and they're gangsters' moles and all. Well, that's actually inaccurate. There's a whole range of complex reasons for why those women are with those men. And so Partners in Crime, my third book, that was how that emerged.
3: I really like the topic that you've written about because you're right, it's women who are involved with these men, very complicated men, very dangerous men. You do wonder what brings these women to the point where they get in relationships with these guys. And we've touched on it in other episodes where people speak about other criminals, but you've really spoken to a fascinating selection of women who really were partnered up with some pretty hardcore guys. I suppose probably one of the most interesting ones for me, and certainly one of the
2: most curious and complex, was Tanya Herman. And Tanya Herman was the girlfriend and she was the accomplice of Joe Corp. And Tanya was convicted of attempted murder of Joe's wife, Maria Corp. So the body in the boot case is what it's infamously referred to. And she did nine years in prison in Dame Phyllis Frost and in another country prison. And she basically met Joe Corp on an internet dating site in about 2003. And she was a single mum, just working two jobs. She had a couple of children. And basically, Joe never told Tanya that he was married. I actually started interviewing Tanya, although you can imagine, I actually met her when she was doing time in Dame Phyllis Trust. So when I say I interviewed her, that's a very loose explanation. I would go in as a a guest. I was on her list of people that she she was allowed to see and who were allowed to come and visit her. And I would go and ask her questions, talk to her, come outside, go down the road and write down everything she said on a notebook because you're not allowed to when you visit people in prison. You're not allowed to do any, any form of an interview. You're not allowed to record it. You're not allowed to diarise it. You're not allowed to take notes. I just had to remember everything that she said. So it was a really fascinating story because I really wanted to know what compelled Tanya to basically end up. She ended up, you know, it was extraordinary. I think it was February 2005. Joe persuaded Tanya to kill his wife, or attempted to kill his wife. So. In their garage, Tanya tried to strangle Maria Corp to death with a strap from a carry bag. And Joe basically said to Tanya, he even told her what to wear. He told her the shoes, he gave her these gloves. He said, so no DNAs will be left, don't worry, you won't get caught. So she ended up strangling Maria, leaving her half dead in the boot of her car outside the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne. And after that, Joe reported that Maria was missing. She was found four days later and she was barely alive. So she was put on life support system and she died a couple of months after that. Now, in the meantime, Joe's brother basically gave a statement to the police about his sister-in-law's disappearance and the homicide police took over the investigation. The police spoke to Joe and Tanya and both of them initially denied being involved with her disappearance and attempted murder. But Tanya's brother Steve ended up wearing a wire and discussed with his sister what she'd done. So she was arrested and charged for the attempted murder of Maria Corp. And so was Joe Corp. So she pleaded guilty to the, her crimes, Tanya did, and she was given 12 years with a nine year minimum. She's done her nine years, she's out now. And Joe's committal, believe it or not, he was committed and he faced eight charges. He pleaded not guilty. And then Maria's funeral was on the 12th of August in 2005 and on the same day her husband Joe was found dead. He, the coroner said that he took his own life. So Joe was never tried in court for the attempted murder of his wife and Tanya never gave evidence. So that was one of the reasons I think she decided to speak to me because she'd never been given a voice. She now reflects very much on her crime and just said, I can't believe that I did what I did. Uh, You know, I must have been stupid. She said, I can't believe that
3: I was convinced by this man to do what I did. In the past, we've spoken to Narelle Fraser, who was the police officer who actually found Maria in the boot. Mm. And she she had a bit to say about Joe, and she was quite baffled as to his hold over women. Mm. Tanya had no
4: previous... Issues with police, a really good person, but she was very, very unlucky in love. She just was looking for love. What was it about Joe? Like, what is Joe? Oh, like? my, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, to be honest, I thought, what? He, oh, he was, he, he was sleazy. Mm. He he was one of those blokes that you know wears the big gold chains mm. and the hairy chest and walks around like he's Superman, strutting. Those oh, men who strut. A strut! Yes. But Tanya, she was besotted with Joe. She must have, yeah, I was thinking she must have been obsessed. She by him. was. She was. And she admits that. She do that? Yeah, she admits that. He actually said to her, "You know, we'll get. Look, I can't get married until we get rid of Maria. We'll." get married, we'll have a son. Like He told her what she wanted to hear. And she was actually so desperate, obsessed with him, that she would actually murder for him.
3: What was Tanya's take about how she fell under his spell? Well, she said that at one stage, that he he completely
2: and utterly redeveloped my whole thinking. He was my world. I would have done anything for him, absolutely anything. She now says, how on earth could I have been so stupid and got suckered in by a guy with such a low IQ? I think, Emily, what we've got to look at here is the the psychologist Patrick Newton. In her trial, this psychologist gave evidence about Tanya and said that she had a dependent personality and a moderately severe depressive disorder. So he said that her personal history of sexual abuse, which apparently occurred from the age of eight, Led her to believe that intimacy and pain were the same. So the abuse that she received from Joe replicated the abuse she experienced in her past. So I think that gives you an understanding as to why Joe was so attractive. You know, when she met him, she'd just finished her marriage with her first husband and he was physically abusive. And then she met Joe. So she was extremely vulnerable at the time, very much. Financially vulnerable but emotionally vulnerable as well. And when you consider what the psychologist said about her, that, you know, she had this dependent personality and that she was suffering from depression and that she had this personal history of sexual abuse, you can see how that allowed her to think that Joe was attractive and why he had such a hold on her. It was even an extraordinary stage, though. It was such a bizarre case where Joe even at one stage faked his own death. He claimed that he died in an accident in Barcelona. And so Tanya organised even the funeral for him over there. I mean, it's just, it was absolutely bizarre. The psychologist even spoke about that as well and said that at one stage that bonded her even more because he came back and he claimed that he was healed and it was such a bizarre relationship but when I went and saw her and I saw her a couple of times in Dan Phyllis Frost and also in another country prison she was doing time and she was having to live with that every day and she just said look I've done his crime and she said the past is the past and I can't undo it and I just have to move on she said my biggest regret is taking a mother away from her children because I would hate that to happen to me. She lives with that every day of her life.
3: Yeah, it's a big price to pay, isn't it, for the relationships that you choose to get into and I I guess it's hard to get out of them. Mm. And if you think about it, she was getting involved with him at a time
2: probably. I mean, we're talking, what, 2003? I mean, internet dating wasn't that popular then but, yeah, she was completely hooked. Yeah, ended up trying to kill his wife, which was extraordinary.
3: Thank you to our patrons, Nicole Palissier, Renee McDonald, Isla D, Carly, Alex Warner
5: and Oxford Steel. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colours to help detect early signs of potential illness.
5: It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: Coming up on Australian True Crime, Rochelle tells us what Australian mystery she's fascinated by. But first, when researching and writing her book Partners and Crime... Did Rochelle discover any common traits in women who marry criminals? Look,
2: it's quite complex, Emily, and and you can't really profile. I mean, that's the common thing in true crime. Everyone loves profiling, which is actually, I think, I don't think it's a practice which should be used because it's really a way of trying to stereotype people. And you can't really sum up the partners of criminals. You know, They don't all come from the same cultural backgrounds. They don't have the similar education, jobs, they don't have the same personality types or even the same reasons why they became involved with the men they did. Fran was never married to Billy the Texan Longley. She was a carer and, well, she was a girlfriend at one stage and she became his carer and she met him over the back fence and she'd lived with him until 2007. And, you know, they had a really interesting rapport. Billy is a... Was a very old fashioned gent. And yeah, he's a convicted murderer and a former painter and docker. He was a gunman down the docks. If you met him, you'd be surprised. He is just a, a gentleman to a certain extent. And he would always walk on the right side of you on the pavement. And he did water aerobics right up until his dotage. And she met Billy over, literally over the back fence. And I think they had an enormous rapport. Fran is very, you know, whip-smart and so is Billy. They both were very widely read. They'd both been growing up in the Depression, although Fran's a lot younger than um, Billy was. But um, she bought the house next door. There was some 23 years' age difference between them. But it was delightful. They did everything together. They watched movies. They ate out together. Billy would often hold court in his house in this little western suburbs house and he'd have magistrates, he'd have journalists, he'd have criminals, he'd have street people knocking on the door wanting money for cigarettes and it was quite an extraordinary time, you know, like he would literally hold court. He had such charisma as a an old villain really with still a lot of manners and a lot of charm He had, you know, some fantastic sayings as an old depression man, you know. Give up, never want a race was one of his favourite sayings. And he just had these classic turns of phrase and he drew people to him. But Billy was a complex man as well. A less intelligent man would do his time easily on the earth. But he's a highly intelligent man, lived with a lot of regret, lived with a lot of depression and really wrestled with the black dog, as they say. Now, Jeannie Keiko and Freddie Keiko, they were completely different. They were married and they'd been married for a very long time. She was the wife of armed robber Fred Keiko and they met as teenagers and they got married in 1995. She met Fred at the age of 17 and he was 27. She was working in a clothing shop in Melbourne CBD and they met at her sister's place. They got engaged and Fred began an eight-year prison term for armed robbery. Now, if you ever met Jeannie, she is extraordinary. She's a Western Suburbs girl, and Fred grew up at the very tough end. He was a ward of the state. He he really did his time tough. He had enormous drug problems. But um, Jeannie grew up in in Melbourne's Western Suburbs. She was one of eight kids, and she worked as a hairdresser's apprentice. She was a photographic model. And she's delightful. You know, she completely fell in love with Fred. And they've actually got an old-fashioned romance. You know, although when you look at it, I mean, I remember going to visit Fred with Jeannie and their son in Melbourne's Remand Centre. And uh, that was the reality. Your irises were checked. You wrote down your, your name in a book. And that was de rigueur for her and her son. And Freddie often did time in jail, and Jeannie and, and their son had to deal with it. How was Fred operating? What was he up to? He'd spent 22 of his 54 years behind bars. So basically that left Jeannie to be a solo mum. He did a lot of... He it was put in to run a youth training centre, and at 16 he started heroin. So he had a drug problem from a very early day. Uh, apparently did many bank robberies. I remember him coming with Jeannie to the launch of my third book, Partners in Crime, and he rocked up in the best purple velveteen suit. The police called him the best dressed bank robber they'd ever arrested. He was extraordinary, a lot of style. He was Alphonse Gangitano's best man at his wedding. And when I met Fred, he had a lot of style. He's probably only about five foot five. But he had a real swagger and he was, he, 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 he suffered with a drug problem and that was, you know, basically um, basically what he had to deal with and, and he was always financing that. But Jeannie and Fred were a true love story. I think Jeannie to this day still lights a candle every night in her room for him. He's now passed but Jeannie still still remember him as being
3: the love of her life. Was he involved in the gangland stuff or was he just to the side of it? No, he, he wasn't involved in it because he
2: was doing time. <laughs> he did a lot of time during, the, during that, that era. He was Alphonse Gangitano's best man. He was very well connected. He knew everyone in Melbourne's
3: scene, but he, he wasn't involved in the gangland wars, no. Did Fred and Jeannie end up having some years later on in their relationship before he died that were happy?
2: Yeah, they did look, they were still happy despite incredible turbulent times and despite the fact that he did so much time in prison. They've still got a love story and they still, I mean, it survived. The love that they both had for each other was very genuine and it's quite complex. I think to a certain extent Jenny wouldn't want to really look at it too closely about how he was getting some of his money. I think at times he struggled. He tried to do some painting and he tried to do some trades work. But once again, he, you know, he was wrestling with the dragon, so he was dealing with heroin, and that's a very strong addiction. He was a very articulate guy and he loved music. He loved just getting out in a car because he was locked down so much in prison for crimes that he did commit. He would love just driving a car and putting on all these 1970s and 80s tracks and just driving down the freeway with this music layering, you know, that that was freedom for him. But yeah, very different again. I mean, you know, if you look at someone like Sylvia Bruno, she was married to one of the underworld figures. She was married to Nick, the Bulgarian Rediff. And He was a major player in Melbourne's underworld in the drug wars and he was a very serious, violent criminal. He had convictions for extortion, assault, false imprisonment, armed robbery, arson, drug trafficking and threats to kill and their marriage lasted six years. But to Sylvia, that was interesting again, Emily, because she was brought up in a very repressive Italian family. So when she met Nick, she was a hairdresser's apprentice And he really secured her as a way of ensuring that he could stay in Australia because he came from Bulgaria. He escaped in the roof of a train. And for Sylvia, Nick represented an escape from her background. She was 16 years of age and she was incredibly naive when she met him. And um, he was only 20. So they both had reasons for finding each other. And I think Sylvia did initially fall for him. But it was a marriage from hell. Sylvia was five months pregnant when they had a horrific car crash, which Nick caused, and she lost the child. You know, often he'd pistol whip Sylvia and stood over her and he'd force drugs down her throat. So you can see she was terrified of him. And when he did time in prison, even though I think she initiated a divorce and served him divorce papers, he would still come back and terrorise her. And she was terrified of him. Uh, That was a relationship where she chose not to see for her own survival. You know, it was a horrendous, violent. And she describes, you know, today she's pretty philosophical. And when I interviewed her for the book, she described Nick as being her teacher. But I'm sure she would look at a different way of getting her learnings now because it was horrendous. And she shut up to survive.
3: Do you know if some of these women have been able to move into a quieter life with some of these guys in jail or their partners dying? Look, it's one of those things, isn't it? Once you're married to someone who does
2: substantial prison time, I'd say your life's changed. You're, you know, the media's constantly chasing you for comment. You're often photographed when you don't want to be. You've got police knocking on your door. I'm not saying they're naive in it I I would never say that they're implicated and they're involved because of who they've chosen or who for whatever reason they're, they're in a relationship with I would say that that once you're involved with someone who does serious crime and is a criminal your life's changed forever your innocence is completely gone and you've got a very different perspective of the world like even with someone like Georgina Freeman and Georgina Freeman was Fascinating for me because she came from a very well-heeled family. Her father was a skin specialist operating in George Street in Sydney. She was very young when she met George Freeman. And George Freeman was a guy who was running all the illegal casinos in Sydney. And you know, she was brought up in a very, very expensive girls' school. But I think she became attracted to George for the wild side of life. And I think she definitely enjoyed. That. I mean, they lived in a multi million dollar mansion in Yowie Bay in Sydney, and she deliberately took a really strong stand. She didn't want to know anything about George's life. When they had people coming around, I remember her saying to me that she would, she would ask them, Well, what do you do? Because that's what you do ask, you know. You and I would say, Well, what do you do for a living? And George would school her afterwards and say, You don't ask that. They're not going to tell you if they're a bank robber. You don't ask those questions. So Georgina learned (laughs) from the school of hard knocks about what not to say. And she was established, a very established child model and was a, a, a very good actor. She was engaged to someone when she met George Freeman and he completely swept her off her feet. She, I think, deliberately enjoyed the trappings too and the wealth that they enjoyed. And she's a very smart woman, very savvy woman. And I think at the end of the day, she had several children with George and enjoyed the the trappings and the opulent lifestyle. And he died and just literally fell down on top of her and said, I love you and fell on top of her and died of a massive asthma attack. Apparently was addicted to painkiller
3: pethidine. This book, Partners in Crime, took a long time because you've had to cultivate these relationships with the women you spoke to. You know, they've got to trust you. You have to. When you're writing someone's story, I'm a very
2: old-fashioned journalist. I believe you've got to be very frank. You've got to earn their trust and respect. I mean, I used to be involved in television current affairs where you'd persuade people and you'd manipulate people and you'd pay them money at times you can't have that when you're writing these people's stories like this for a book. I spoke to literally dozens and dozens of women. You've also got to find them. That's actually a big thing. So it's you actually have to find them. You've got to you've got to verify their um, authenticity and who they are. You've got to confirm that they are who they say they are, and then you've got to build a rapport. And and you've also got to ensure that the, I ensured in this book, that the women were happy with the story. I wanted it to be their truth. I didn't want it to be an objective journalistic perspective. I wanted it to be their truth.
3: And as a lifelong observer of crime, what are some of the cases in Australia that really got under your skin or you are extremely interested in? Well,
2: okay, one of the stories that I absolutely am fascinated with and it's still an ongoing mystery, is the disappearance of David Prudhoe. And David Prudhoe was the former manager of Bowen Prison. He was in charge of the crime scene when Carl Williams, convicted murderer and gangland killer, was murdered in Bowen. Now, David Prudhoe, some months after Carl was murdered, went on a hunting trip. He was an exceptionally skilled hunter. He was uh, someone who's used to being out in the bush, and he went with his brother-in-law He's never been found. His body's never been found. His gun has never been found. His GPS has never been found. His backpack has never been discovered. It's like some spirit or some alien creature came down and nabbed him and whisked him away. Now, I don't believe in coincidences. The more you write about crime, true crime, the more you think there's no such thing as coincidences. Is it a coincidence that he went missing shortly after carl 's death? He was involved in the crime scene it's very interesting there, there's I spoke to a uh, someone who' was involved in the search and a former colleague and working in the prisons and he just said it was he still is absolutely baffled as to why David Prahot has never been found i 'm also baffled and it it's very interesting a number of theories you know allegedly at one stage he was seen with another female in in WA that's been completely dismissed you know his bank accounts have never been touched he's never used his passport that's one of the cases I'm completely fascinated by I I think constantly you've got to keep looking at cases involving like long-term cases like the Beaumont children I, I mean that case is still ongoing and that's never been solved either Um, but I think you know I suppose there's always there's always cases which it's probably more the oh well that's another classic it's another missing persons those two campers that were also gone missing allegedly having some form of a liaison he's a married man she was a friend they went camping up in the Alpine country. Once again, completely burnt out car. Their bodies have never been found. There's a lot more to that story, I would say. And there's another story too involving the two, the mother and son, that went missing in the, the tinny out at Port Phillip Bay. Now, that's an extraordinary story. There has to be a lot more behind that as well. Um, their bodies have never been found. The tinny, I think, was discovered. Um, and why you'd take an elderly mother out in the middle of the ocean and uh, knowing that she's on daily medications, et cetera, in a rough weather, once again, Emily, just another extraordinary missing persons case, which I think has probably got longer tendrils.
3: Thank you to Rochelle Jackson, whose book Partners in Crime is available now. Thank you to our patrons for keeping this show on the road. Jessica Lofland, Stella Bella, Alicia Hatfield, Erin Turner, Katie Kane, and Suti Bun. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week.
5: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp.